The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, January 30th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The dribs and drabs and threads and shreds of impeachment contain interesting little nuggets, but these are, of course, just the tiny pebbles compared to the small boulder the size of a large boulder that is the essential truth of the impeachment trial and very likely acquittal of Donald J. Trump, that truth being that he's likely to be acquitted. Very likely, in fact. But indulge me as I share some stray observations. I enjoyed yesterday Trump lawyer Pat Philbin answering a question from Louisiana Senator John Kennedy about the blanket refusal of the White House to allow witnesses to testify. The idea that there was blanket defiance and no explanation and no case law from the White House is simply incorrect. I put up slides showing... Philbin rejected that description. Philbin then went over the various different rationales as to why the White House didn't let any witness testify. Sometimes it was a doctrine of absolute immunity. Sometimes it was what he said was a flaw in the subpoenas. Other times, maybe they just didn't ask nicely. You see, every request or subpoena was in fact denied, but this was no blanket denial. They were denied for all different reasons. So what he was describing, but didn't quite say was, it was a quilt. It was a quilt denial. Sophistry. Then yesterday, we heard from Trump lawyer Pam Bondi, who has a very specific niche in these hearings. She is the Hunter Biden hunter. So Hunter Biden did attend a board meeting in Monaco. We also know that Hunter Biden went um, to Norway on a fishing trip, and he took his daughter and his nephew. So he took two of Joe Biden's children with him on a fishing trip to Norway. Yes, Hunter Biden is one of Joe Biden's children. Hunter Biden's child and nephew are Joe Biden's grandchildren, which is relevant genealogically, but not at all relevant to the question at hand. Should the president be impeached and removed over his twisting of foreign policy for political purposes? Then, Bondi, who only showed up once or twice, struggled to recall basic facts and dates. The Norway trip was June of 2015. He remained on the board. Uh, where is it? Until. She's turning pages. April. She can't find it. Of. There it is. 2019. Bondi was sidelined today. Thus far, I'm recording this around 6.30. Haven't seen her yet. But let's take a step back and consider what earned Pam Bondi her place on the Trump defense team to begin with. Pam Bondi was the attorney general of Florida. Trump University was regulated under the auspices of that office. When other attorney generals did bring charges against Trump University, Pam Bondi did not, though that decision was made after she accepted a $25,000 donation from Donald Trump. Now, to be quite fair on this show, I made the case, after reading all the statutes and all the facts, I made the case that Trump University probably shouldn't have been charged under the rules there in Florida. Fine. But it is true that Trump made the donation from his now defunct foundation, and doing so from the foundation would be an illegal political donation, and the Bondi Political Action Committee accepted this unlawful political donation, which is sloppy. 
Well, here they are both today, one in the employ of the other, tasked with spreading a farrago of misinformation about a rival's supposed unethical pay-to-play tactics when they, in fact, are the embodiment of the same. I said same, not shame, because in Trump world, there is none. On the show today, the gist, which is the Merriam-Webster word of the day, by the way, the gist of today's Q&A is the deep-duty Dershowitz dreamed up. But first, as Recline says the world is polarized, figures coming from a left-center-left guy, I can say this as a center-center-left guy, what does he know all the way over there in his crazy world? Ezra Klein of Vox, author of Why We're Polarized, next. Ezra Klein, the estimable Ezra Klein, that's his Homeric epitaph, is out with a new book, Why We're Polarized. Its cover is black and white. Its subject is black and white. Its tone is regretful, and it properly diagnoses one of the greatest ills of our time, politically, mostly politically, but also socially. Ezra Klein, the editor-at-large and co-founder of Vox, who has his own excellent podcast named after himself, eponymous, I guess is the word they use for that, is here now. Hello, Ezra. Thank you for having me. You talk in your show and in your writing about all manner of policy topics, big, fine. Why did you think polarization was the ill that best defines and cuts across all these problems that we're having as a society? Because I've covered all those policy topics Mm -hmm. and it took some time. Uh, Maybe I'm a slow learner, but at a certain point, a couple years back, I realized that you could not actually understand what was happening in them without reconstructing your understanding around polarization. So, So let me put this actually pretty directly. You might think with something like the Affordable Care Act, which is at its very core, a redistribution of money from rich states to poor states and states with a high insured population to states with low insured population, that what you would see is a voting pattern where states are going to get subsidized by the Affordable Care Act, voted for it, and maybe the ones that were going to be on the hook for paying for more of it didn't. But instead, what you get is every Republican in the House and Senate voting against it, virtually every Democrat voting for it. And this is true on issue after issue after issue. I don't think I've ever covered an issue where at the beginning, you know, sitting there hearing people talk about how there's plenty of room for everybody to get together. I remember Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich sitting on a couch together in a commercial talking about how cap and trade on climate change is a way to go. And then by the time it actually becomes something we're fighting about in American politics and something we're voting on in American politics, it goes red-blue. And so to understand why we have this collapse of positive-sum policy negotiation into zero-sum partisan war fair, you have to figure out what the mediating player is. And that mediating player, which is, I think, very much the master story of how American politics functions in this era, is polarization. Okay, now that's interesting. Do you think, and you talk to him, do you think not only were you slow to get it, but the Obama administration was slow to get it because they had a theory of the case when it came to Obamacare of, since it is so apparently in the interests of so many disparate political factions, we are going to allow them to come up with some sort of a version of a solution uh, in the Senate. And from there, we will take the mantle and that totally collapsed because everything became polarized along party lines. 
Yeah, I think there's a couple things here. And I've, I've spoken with Obama in this, and I have some of that interview in the book. One of the things here is that it is very popular to run in American politics as an opponent of polarization, a doubter of polarization. Obama's famous 2004 convention speech is all about how polarization is an illusion. There isn't a red America and a blue America, but a United States of America. We are not divided. We are being divided by spin doctors and ad makers and political consultants. That's a very, very popular form of political rhetoric because, because people don't like political division. But the problem is that it doesn't translate into much then when you have to actually get things done in American politics. The other problem for them and for everybody is that there isn't really an alternative. It's not like somebody has a great idea for how to get anything done without it. He did need, at least at some points in that process, before they got to the 60-vote threshold in the Senate, some Republican votes. Or if you're doing something that you don't, you have divided government, as he did for most of his time in office, you need Republican votes to get anything done legislatively. So something I argue throughout the book is that polarization itself is not the problem. It's the interaction between polarization and a political system that is idiosyncratically designed to require very high levels of compromise and even census to get things done. And that puts American politicians in a weird position. You see Joe Biden saying Republicans are going to have an epiphany or Bernie Sanders calling for saying there's going to be a political revolution. You need this constant idea of what is going to happen that is going to fundamentally change the dynamics of American politics so that your agenda becomes plausible. But the problem is nothing is going to happen that will fundamentally change the dynamics of American politics. This is not a question at the moment with a good answer to it. And so you get a lot of rhetoric that particularly in retrospect ends up looking a little fanciful. Yeah. Yeah, a couple things. One, big compliments for acknowledging that there is no solution because I read so many of these books and the last third is that here's the solution part and you just come right out and say, I'm not really that into the solution part because I don't think there's a solution. And in fact, I got the sense that you thought that it would denigrate the quality of your scholarship up to that point if you were to sell us a simple solution. Thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. It is fully true. (laughs) But also... It's funny because I interviewed Lee Drutman, whose book about polarization, his solution is let's have a bunch of different parties, maybe came out a little after a press time. And I, I interviewed Sam Rosenfeld. I'm interviewing you. And you guys are all, well, they're political scientists. You're someone who studies political science. And you have this solution, or at least you have this diagnosis, which is the problem is we had ideological sorting in the parties. And this all came from, in the 1950s, the political scientists, your equivalent of the greatest minds, you know, 70 years ago. We're saying the big problem is we don't have ideological sorting in the parties. Yep. You have in 1950, this a American Political Science Association report come out and they say, we have this terrible problem in American politics and it's that the parties are not polarized. And it's really important. And Sam Rosenfeld, who you mentioned, gets at this very well in his book, The Polarizers. It's really important to appreciate that their position had a lot of logic to it. What they were saying is that at that point in American politics, the parties were not honoring any particular agenda. So if you were a Democrat in South Carolina, you could have been voting for Strom Thurmond for Senate, who is one of the most conservative members of the body. If you're a Democrat in Minnesota, you could be voting for Hubert Humphrey, one of the most liberal members of the body. The Democratic Party nationally did not mean what it meant regionally. And so it was not honoring the choices voters were making. So the political scientists say you need responsible parties, parties that have an agenda and stick to it so that people can make a choice about which side they support and see that choice carried out into policy. But even at that time, there are people like Austin Rainey, another political scientist, who are saying, no, 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 this is wrong. Because in our system, which does not permit majorities to govern, if you make it harder to get compromise, if you make the disagreements bigger and sharper and you put them between between the parties as opposed to inside the parties, you won't get compromised and the system will begin to grind to a halt, which is more or less what happened. But that's why I think it's very important to understand polarization as a problem that relates to the structure of our government, not a problem itself. And the one last point I'll make on this quickly is that polarization, as far as we can tell, looking around the world, looking at other countries, even looking at our own past, 
it is normal. The fact that political parties have distinct agendas from each other and are not just ideologically, but also and very importantly, demographically distinct in who supports them, that is normal. It's what we tend to see. It was actually the mid-20th century American politics that was deformed by race, where you had the Southern white supremacist Dixie crowd organization inside the Democratic Party, liberal Republicans in the Republican Party. It was a mid-20th century depolarized America that was very aberrational and that was working off of very unusual historical circumstances to interrupt how party government tends to function. So there's one idea in the book that I don't agree with that I take issue with, and it's Excellent. your assertion that, and in some ways it's right, but it's your assertion that polarization doesn't equal extremism. To be polarized doesn't mean necessarily that you are extreme, and you cite a couple examples. But I would say, okay, they're not synonyms, but they're highly correlative. Just lay out your thesis and why you think that polarization and moderation are really two different things. Yeah. And it's not to say, by the way, they're always different, but I appreciate this coming up because I think it's a super interesting point. So the point I'm making here is that polarization is about consistency. It's about what are the set of issues you have and how do they go together? It's not about what the issues are themselves. And one of the examples I give in the book is that mid-century depolarized American politics, what it relies on is a basically a bipartisan agreement that we are not going to deal with issues of race. We're going to permit Jim Crow to continue existing and dominating the American South. I would say that that is an unbelievably, atrociously, abhorrently extreme position. Similarly, I'll, I'll go in a modern version. Like I'm an animal rights guy. I'm a vegan. I care a lot and worry a lot about factory farming. I'm very much in the minority. Uh, but I think one day I'll be in the majority. And I think the pro-factory farming position, which a lot of people hold implicitly, is the extreme one. And then you get into this question of, is parties and polarization itself moderating. Because one thing I would push on with your version of this is that oftentimes parties are themselves somewhat moderating because they're trying to push and lead their followers towards the ideas they think can actually pass. So there actually is some political science evidence that people who are not as attached to party tend to hold more extreme positions just in different directions. They'll say like, yeah, on immigration, you know, Democrats have been kind of talked into the idea you should we should have a comprehensive bill with like border security and some legalization. But people just say like, either I want to deport everybody or, you know, just like let anybody in, like, why not? But then they might also say and make marijuana completely illegal and gay marriage completely illegal, but yeah, open the borders. And so parties don't always play a moderating effect. And I do think polarization, the way it's working out is going to push people a little bit to the extremes. I don't think you can map a polarized era onto a more extreme era. I think in a lot of ways, we are having much less extreme fights today than we were in the 1960s, but they are mapped onto party in a way that drives much more political conflict from them that happened in the 1960s. As we live in this polarized era, we are getting more extreme policies. In the book, you talk about it was a compromise moderate position for FDR not to sign anti-lynching legislation in order to get some of the New Deal agenda done. That's true. But I would take out any sort of value judgment on extreme and just define it as the distance traveled from the status quo. And in that sense, I think polarization does map onto extremism. And to me, the polarization is moving parties towards the more extreme position. It is the reason why Elizabeth Warren or AOC's supporters can say, we absolutely have to have these bold policy positions, which means these extreme, not as a judgment, just as how far they deviate from the status quo. We absolutely have to have them precisely because we are in these polarized times and we are fighting these guys, mostly guys on the way other side. So we have to counterbalance that. I actually think given how you define it, you are 100% correct. I just don't agree with the core definition there. But I think what you say is totally rational and logical. 
if you define extremism as distance traveled from the status quo, well, then, yes, 100 percent polarization and a number of other things. I think a lot of other forces in public life right now are pushing people towards the edges. I think the place I come down on this, and, and I do say this in the book, is not that extreme policies are bad. I actually I try to give some examples on both sides, and I talk about the way Medicare for all is understood as a more extreme policy than a hybrid public-private public option system in this country, but that from the international perspective, not having a truly universal health care system that keeps costs down and covers everybody – is both an extreme and cruel and somewhat crazy position. And so the argument I make is that I just don't like the idea of polarization being equated with extremism because I don't think extremism is a concept with internal coherence to it. What I'm trying to do there is, as a bigger point about American politics, is get rid of people's tendency to make polarization a synonym for extremism Mm -hmm. as a way of saying that polarization is always and everywhere bad. Polarization is simply a way of describing how disagreement is sorted in a polity. So if you keep the entire issue space completely equal, so you're not changing what anybody believes about anything, you can have it be very polarized where everybody who believes one of the things is in the Democratic Party and everybody believes the others in the Republican Party, or you can have it be very highly distributed and unsorted such that it's not polarized, but the same number of people believe thing A and the same number of people believe thing not A. So I just want to push people away from seeing polarization as just an epithet because I think using it as an epithet, polarization is always bad, is a way of not actually grappling with what it means and why it is very rational for a lot of people under a lot of conditions to become much more polarized, to amp up the tendency for their disagreements and to change the way they approach American politics given that the parties become very different and the stakes have become a lot higher when one party or the other gets control of the government. Ezra Klein is the editor-at-large and co-founder of Vox. He hosts the Ezra Klein Show podcast. His new book is Why We're Polarized. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you very much. And now the spiel. The Republican argument for acquittal has been described as a kitchen sink approach. Either if you want to say he didn't do it, say that. If you want to say it's not impeachable, it's no big deal, take your pick. You can find a justification if you're a Republican. Susan Hennessy from Lawfare describes this as a choose your own adventure. I have described it as a poo poo platter. But yesterday, Alan Dershowitz pooed in the poo poo. He offered a defense that was so bad that his defense became prosecutor's exhibit A. His defense was the opposite of dispositive. It was dis-dispositive, and Adam Schiff positively dissed it. Let us hear some of that explanation. Adam Schiff, talk us into it. If there's a quid pro quo that the president believes will help him get reelected, and he believes his reelection is in the national interest, then it doesn't matter how corrupt that quid pro quo is. It's astonishing that on the floor of this body, someone would make that argument. Now, it didn't begin that way in the beginning of the president's defense, but what we have seen over the last couple of days is a descent into constitutional madness. Descent into constitutional madness. Schiff also described the implications of that argument this way. That is the normalization of lawlessness. Yes, it is a dangerous precedent to say the president can act in his perceived political interest because he perceives his own reelection to be in the national interest. 
because all you have to do is say, well, did he perceive it as such? Therefore, he's off the hook. Now, I do think there's a little bit of a wrinkle in this specific case. I think you actually can, in this specific case, question the idea that the president must have a perfect perception if it is his perception, and you could do so via the insanity defense, but that's a hypothetical, right? Dershowitz didn't get into that. What if the president's perception is inflected by insanity? The point is, the president is wacky and the defense is wrong. Now, to be fair to the perpetually unfair Trump lawyers, they made many, many wrong arguments. This wasn't the only one, it was just the biggest. They have argued at least 10 times that we're so damn close to an election You can't possibly impeach now because everyone knows that the impeachment clause is only applicable for three quarters of the president's first term. But we should never even consider removing the name of a president from the ballot on a purely partisan basis in an election year. To be fair, he was impeached in 2019. Is that a presidential year? Is that the month before presidential year? Doesn't really matter. The Republicans even argued that Trump shouldn't be impeached because Trump is doing such a damn bang-up job. Here's lawyer Eric Hirschman. The president's approval rating, while we are sitting here in the middle of these impeachment proceedings, have hit an all-time high. Yes, the president's approval rating currently recorded by Gallup at the sky-high rate of 44% approve, 53% disapprove. This actually, by some measures, is about the highest he's achieved in his term. We cannot remove a person who abused his office if it means thwarting the will of the minority of voters who voted for him and the minority of voters who support him. We cannot possibly do that. These are just the garden variety terrible arguments that we've become used to. They don't generate headlines. They don't generate the label dissent into lawlessness. That's the difference between the Hirsch and the Dersh. One is unconvincing. The other acts as a slam dunk for the other side. The big problem, going back to the Dershowitz argument, is tactical. It's not that it's such a terrible argument or just terrible or just threadbare or just untruthful or merely unconvincing. It's that it's now a problem for Republicans. This is the problem when you have a poo-poo platter with actual poo on it. You can't go in and grab a random what you hope's a shrimp roll or a chicken wing and guarantee that it's going to be unsullied. All but two or three Republicans will never have to answer for their vote in any way to the voters. But now a reasonable question for every senator who votes to acquit in the impeachment trial and very likely acquittal of Donald Trump is this. Wait, by voting to acquit, are you supporting Alan Dershowitz's theory of the Constitution? Wait, With a vote to acquit, do you give credence to that theory of governance? And as a follow-up, so should we apply that to President Sanders or President Klobuchar? The Republicans had to know what they were getting into. One surprising aspect of the dunking on Dershowitz dim-witted declaration was that we all knew that this is what he'd been saying all along. This incredibly deranged theory is what got him hired in the first place. When I heard it, said yesterday, I mentioned it on this show, but just as just one of many examples of bad Republican arguments. But most of my colleagues in the media screamed, what? You know, I say they got it more right than I did. I took for granted that he would say in front of the Senate what he'd been saying to interviewers, what essentially earned him his status as Donald Trump's favorite TV lawyer. 
the very hiring of Alan Dershowitz is disqualifying because it is so contrary to the president's self-interest. Of course, this is a case of the president acting out of self-interest that winds up being in the public interest because it demonstrates how flawed the president's perception is of his own self-interest. It is, in the end, another example of what the president's defenders would describe as his unimpeachable conduct, or as Alan Dershowitz calls it, just conduct. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader, who is now vacationing in Norway and has consumed, apparently, uh, according to my notes, uh, where is it here? Okay, Lutgefisk. Priscilla Alabi is the Gist's associate producer. She's waiting for when the word of the day is obfuscatory. Want to help the show and leave a review so other people can find us? Yeah, a lot of people do that on that one app that's named for the company that's named for a fruit that was supposedly eaten in the Garden of Eden. You know the fruit I'm talking about. What about Podchaser? Podchaser.com. They do reviews. Go there. Give us a good one. We'll rise to the top of everyone's list. The gist. I've always been more of an OED guy, but MW Collegiate is engaging in the charm offensive. Merriam-Webster's is now my strong second choice in the Dictionary Caucus. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.